Hello, and welcome to this Solace Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit solacechurch.com. All right, so John chapter 11. Now, as we have been walking through this gospel, we've kind of turned a corner Uh, I think it was chapter 6 was where we really made the shift uh, to where we are now focusing on what have become famously known as Jesus's seven I am statements. There's a lot of things that people have to say, a lot of perspectives that people have about the person of Jesus, but we're letting Jesus speak for himself. Jesus in the gospel of John makes seven I am declarations about who he is. And they're all illustrations to describe not just who he is, you know, generally, but who he is, who he can be to us personally. Uh, So he says, I am the bread of life and whoever eats of me uh, will have eternal life. He says that I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Last week, we saw Jesus say, I am the door. I am the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. So Jesus is not just saying, this is who I am. He's saying, this is who I am to you. And that's where we are today in John 11, looking at another of these I am statements. And in John chapter 11, Jesus is going to give us his fifth I am statement. And it's Jesus saying that he is, I am the resurrection and the life. The resurrection and the life. That's the promise he makes to us. Listen, that's who Jesus is to you, to me. He is, he says about himself, I am the resurrection and the life. I'll give you a little teaser. Verse 25, he who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. So that's where we're going. Now, this declaration of Jesus, and just like all the other declarations and I am statements, uh, one of the biggest mistakes that I think we make with these statements is we pull them out of the the beauty of their context. it's like plucking a mountain out of a beautiful you know, landscape and just kind of isolating it when, when it's meant to be seen within the proper scenery, within, within the proper context. And the story is really what gives it all the life. Um, even Jesus saying he's the bread of life or the light of the world. That's like a famous one. And we looked at how that actually comes in the context of Jesus' interaction with this woman caught in adultery. And it's the context that really brings to life what Jesus is saying. Uh, And so that's what we want to do. We want to see here in John 11 why Jesus is saying that he's the resurrection and the life. What does that mean in its context? And we find that it actually is placed within the story, a story of Jesus doing what I would call his greatest earthly miracle. Um, And I'm just talking about in the time of his ministry. When I talk about greatest, I mean just like if we're comparing them, I mean, this might just be my opinion, but I think this is the most incredible miracle because we see in John 11, Jesus resurrecting someone who's been dead for four days, okay? Now, there's a lot of other miracles that Jesus does in the Bible that are like this, kind of, right? He, uh, Jairus's daughter, we know there's other examples of Jesus bringing people back to life, but usually they are only deceased for about a day. So those are more like resuscitations, okay? Whereas here in John 11, you have a full-on dead guy. Like, what's the movie Princess Bride? Not mostly dead, really dead or whatever. You know what I mean? Like super dead. And he's been dead so so long, four days, that the New King James will, will say that he begins to stinketh. So decomposition has started to set in. I mean, this is a dead guy. And this is uh, Lazarus, who Jesus calls back to life. Jesus brings him, resurrects him back to life. This is the seventh miracle of Jesus. Seven is a big theme in the Gospel of John. You have seven I am statements. You have seven witnesses to Jesus. We see those specifically in John, uh, John 8 and John 7. And then you also have these seven featured miracles. And this is the seventh one. And each of them exists to uh, illustrate something different. So let's, let's look at Jesus, the resurrection, performing this incredible seventh miracle, making this bold fifth I am statement. Uh, let's read it together. John 11, here's where the story begins. It says, now a certain man was sick. Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary. Bethany is the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. 
Uh, now, we have here three characters that we are uh, consistently familiarized with in the gospel accounts. This is a, uh, a set of close-knit siblings, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and they are all three very, very, we'll say very, very close friends of Jesus. You know, Jesus had some like main um, homestays and, and, and home away from homes in the time of his ministry. We know his, his main home obviously was in Nazareth where he was from. He did a lot of ministry in Capernaum where he spent a lot of time, but then he also had this, you know, little, um, little uh, Bethany Airbnb, his little getaway uh, with these three close friends of his. Bethany's about uh, two miles outside of, of Jerusalem, um, and this is where Jesus spent a lot of time. Uh, you might remember Mary and Martha from the famous story where Jesus is coming to their house, and they're so excited, and he comes to their home, and Martha's the one who's like got the gift of servanthood, and she's doing all the dishes, she's sweeping the floor, she's like full-on hospitality mode, that's her gift. And Mary's there just to hear the words of the Lord. And Martha gets all frustrated, because Mary's sitting there at Jesus' feet, and Martha's like, Jesus, like, do, don't, she does, she's not helping me. Like, don't you see that like, I'm the one doing all the hard work, and Mary's just sitting at your feet? Um, and Jesus says that Mary's chosen the one thing that's needed. Now, I feel like sometimes we take that story and we, we misuse it and we're like, some of you guys are like, man, I, yeah, that's my spiritual gift. Like, I don't ever really serve because I'm like, I like to be more at the feet of Jesus than actually do anything. And that's obviously, when you read the whole Bible, you know, you actually see that that's not, that's not the point. It's about having a balance of serving from a place of, of, of being at the feet of Jesus. But that's where we see those, those two sisters there. And here we see all three of them come into the, the scene because Lazarus, their brother, we don't know what's wrong with him. Uh, we don't know what disease he has. We don't know what kind of illness he's, he's, um, he's received, he has here. But he's sick. A certain man, Lazarus, was sick. Verse 3 says this. So here's what happens. Therefore the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. So I think this is really cool. Um, the sisters, their brother's sick, and obviously we, we get the, the idea here that he's like very, very sick, like to the point of death. He's on his deathbed sick, and I just think it's awesome that they go, what should we do? We should cry out to Jesus. Uh, it's what we should do when we're broken, when we're sick, when we're in loss and need. They're doing the right thing. They know Jesus heals. They know the power Jesus has. And so I love that. The first thing that comes to their mind is we got to find Jesus. Now, Jesus is about a day's journey away from where they are. So in the days um, before text and, and email, they had to send a messenger. So they send someone to Jesus. They send him a day away. And they're probably like, run as fast as you can. Lazarus, he's, who knows how much time he has? We, we end up discovering he doesn't have much time at all. Okay, he ends up, he ends up dying. But they're like, go find Jesus and let him know. And here's what they say. Here's their appeal. Ready? Let Jesus know the one whom you love is sick. Now, we know that John identified himself as the disciple whom Jesus loves. This is nice of John to be like, okay, he loved Lazarus too, right? But, but you know, you just get this impression uh, of, of the people that were close to Jesus. Like, the closer you were to Jesus the more loved by him you felt, which is just so awesome. Um, hopefully that's our experience as well. Like the, the more time we spend with him, the more we're identified by his love for us. And that's the appeal that the sisters make about Lazarus. And I, you know, I don't know if they're just being genuine. I don't know if they're, if they're kind of painting Jesus into a corner of like the one that you love. Remember, you love him. He's sick. Like in other words, like we're expecting you to do something here. The one that you love is sick. It says this in verse 4, when Jesus heard that, I want you to see something here. He said, this sickness is not unto death before the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. That's Jesus' response to this message. Now, uh, that right there gives us the big theme of what this chapter is about or what this miracle is going to be about. Uh, Jesus is going to use this sickness for his glory. He's going to be glorified through it. He says, this thing is not for Lazarus's peril. This, is, this, this horrible thing that's come into the world 
And I think it's, it's, it's pretty relevant and fitting for us right now with what we're walking through. And, and we could just say boldly, we have this confidence that in the end, every sickness for the believer is not going to end in peril. In the end, God is going to be glorified through our lives one way or another. We see that in the story, sometimes in his own way. Uh, but that's what he says. Now, that's the big point of John 11. This sickness, this story is about the glory of God. God being glorified, the glory of Jesus, and specifically, the, the glory of his love. I want to say that. Now, big Bible words that we use, not really that long, but big, you know, weighty words like glory. That's one that we use all the time. One of those words that we use more than we define. And it, it simply means the weight of who God is, the glory. Uh, so, uh, some authors, uh, John Piper himself specifically, described the, weight, uh, the glory of God as the beauty of God emanating from his person. The beauty of God emanating from his person. Think of like the sun rays coming off of the sun. Uh, remember when Moses said to God, God, show me your glory. And what did God do? God began to proclaim the beauty in the, uh, of his goodness and his character. Uh, we all have our own glory. It's a lesser glory, but there's a glory of every creature that reflects God, uh, made in his image. And so when you see the glory of God... Uh, certainly there's this sense in which it's like heavy and weighty, but the idea is that you, you clearly see him, that you, um, you get a, a vision of who he is in truth, and the weight of it usually in, in the Bible when people see God's glory, they're crushed by it. Uh, but here in John 11, the glory that's especially revealed through Jesus is his love. I just want to say that again and again and again. That's the theme. Uh, the theme of this story is the love of Jesus displayed in the face of sickness and death. Verse 2 says, now, and we see the same theme again. Sorry, verse, uh, that's verse 5. It says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. All right, so again, that's the theme. It's Jesus' love. Uh, but here it's telling us that Jesus himself, he really does love not just Lazarus, but Mary and Martha. Uh, it's important to point out, as we're saying the love of Jesus is the theme of this chapter, it's important to point out that the word for love in verse 5 is that describes Jesus' love is different than the word in verse 3. That's Mary, or, or yet Mary and Martha describing Jesus' love. In verse 3, when they say, Jesus, the one whom you love is sick, it's the word phileo. And we know this word. It, it means, you know, from this, if you're from Philadelphia, phileo, you're from the city of brotherly love. The word phileo means friendship love. It's like they're saying, Jesus, the one, you know, your, your, your good buddy, Lazarus, your good friend, he's sick, the one that you love. It's friendship love. It's usually united by a mutual passion and hobby. But in verse 5, when it says that Jesus loved Mary, Martha, Martha, her sister, and Lazarus, it's the word agapeo, or we know it, uh, the simpler version is agape, and it speaks of unconditional love. And even the tense of the word there, it, it speaks of a never-ending love. It's an ongoing love. It's a love that's unconditional. It's of God, and it keeps going and going and going. It's beyond feeling. It's sacrificial. It's unconditional. It's like a waterfall that's just falling upon someone. So that is who Jesus is in this passage. Jesus is revealed to us in this horrible situation as a loving God, as a loving Savior. Now, I want us to see a few realities of his love. Let's walk through this. Uh, the first thing that, that I want us to see, number one, is that Jesus' love in this passage we see is a love that's greater than our understanding. Jesus' love in this story is seen as greater than our understanding. And where do we see that? Well, Jesus gets this message. Lazarus is sick. Jesus is like, it's okay. It's in the end, it's going to be for my glory. Don't worry about it. It says, Jesus loves Martha and her sister Lazarus. Verse 6 says, so, in other words, therefore, because he loves them, it says, when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Someone say, huh? Right? What? Isn't that an interesting sentence? Jesus got word that Lazarus was sick. They expedited a messenger, and they like want Jesus Amazon Prime same-day delivery. Come now. I want a same-day delivery miracle. I, Jesus, I need you. Lazarus is going to die. So the Bible says Jesus loved Lazarus. He loved him. So when he got the message that Lazarus was on his deathbed and they need a healer, Jesus goes, I'm going to stay where I am for two more days. What? 
I thought you loved Lazarus. Now, this, um, this decision of Jesus's, it, it becomes the, uh, the frustration, the main point of frustration for both Martha, Mary, and those that are with them. When Jesus does end up showing up after Lazarus has died, they are constantly looking at Jesus saying, if you would have been here, like if you would have been here, this wouldn't have happened. I thought, like, what's up with this? I thought you loved him. Um, I mean, I think for us, if we were to interpret this verse, we would say, you know, Jesus loved them, loved Lazarus, therefore he did what they asked. He came. Now, um, this again is a point to remind us that God's love is greater than our understanding. You know, a lot of times in life, what we can do is we can make the same mistake where we try to interpret God's love based upon our circumstances and based upon how we think his love should look. God, I'm going through this hard time and I need you to do this. And because I've got this understanding of your love that's kind of boxed into my expectation, if you don't show up, I'm not gonna believe that you love me. Here's the list of conditions to where I want you to prove your love for me. Um, And this is a challenging thing. Uh, What we end up seeing in this story, something that's amazing, is that Jesus does love Lazarus, and he had a plan all along. He he loved them in a greater way than they could ever desire him for. He wasn't just going to heal Lazarus. He was going to resurrect Lazarus. I mean, that's better. But in their tunnel vision, all they see is, why didn't you come? I thought you loved me. And and maybe for you, you, you've had some situations like that where you created this sort of A plus B equals C um, example and, and test of God's love for you. And can I just remind you of this truth? It's, it's Isaiah 55, 9. It simply says that as high as the heavens are than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's love, God, listen, when he doesn't come through the way that you expect him to, don't filter his love for you based on the circumstance. His ways are higher. And this is the way Ephesians 3 says it. I love it how it says in Ephesians 3. Uh, Paul prays that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, length, and depth, and height, to know the love of Christ, notice this, which passes knowledge. His love is greater than our understanding. If we're going to even begin to step into a relationship where I am defined by God's love, like Lazarus, we've gotta know that it's beyond our knowledge. It's not based on our circumstance. It's greater than that. God's ways are higher than our ways. His love is greater than our understanding. Uh, It passes knowledge. Now, that's the first example we see there uh, with Jesus staying where he is. But now, what's interesting is we see Jesus sort of begin to, his love now is going to begin to clash with his disciples. So he doesn't go to Bethany, and that, you know, his love there is kind of clashing with those that are expecting him to. I thought you loved us. I thought you loved Lazarus. But now notice this. It says um, that Jesus, after this, said to his disciples, let's go to Judea again. Let's go back to Judea. Uh, Jesus now is like, I'm, go- I'm going to go. It's been two days. Now I'm going to go see Lazarus. I'm on, he's in his own timing, right? Jesus is following the will and the work of his father, Uh, Jesus, by the way, is never late, okay? Uh, His delays are not delays. (laughs) They're just his timing, right? Um, Jesus is never late. We're usually early, okay? And so Jesus here, he's not, he's just, he's in step with his father. He goes, okay, now we're going to go to Judea. Now, at this point, his disciples don't know the condition of Lazarus. Um, All that they know is that the last time they were in Judea, which is the previous chapter, John chapter 10, Jesus narrowly escaped stoning at the hand of the Jews. So I imagine the the disciples, when Jesus is like, like they get word that Lazarus is is sick, and the disciples are like, oh no, like we should pray for him probably from all the way over here, right? Like we don't want to go, like, you know, God can hear our prayer from here, Jesus. And Jesus is like, we're going to stay two days. And we're like, oh, yeah, good decision. And you got to trust it to the Lord. You know, we shouldn't go there. Like, I imagine they're kind of like, um, you know, in the self-preservation mode. So now uh, when Jesus says, I'm going to go, I'm going to go to Judea again, he's, gonna, he's saying, I'm going to go risk my life for Lazarus. That's how it appears. Now, it says this in verse 8, then the disciples said to him, Rabbi, teacher, lately... I don't know if you remember this, 
previous chapter, uh, the Jews sought to stone you. Remember that? Remember where you almost got stoned recently? He says, and you're going to go there again? Like, is that really a good idea? Like, did you, Jesus, did you pray about it? You know, like I imagine they're just trying to, to wiggle. Now, they have their own, you could say they have their own standard of love. For them, it's almost like the length and the height and the depth of their love, it came to a point to where the second that it was going to cause me to risk my life was where my love stopped. The second I actually had to deny myself, the second I actually had to sacrifice, um, my love stopped. Um, but uh, we, we, see the, we see that this doesn't prevent Jesus. Jesus says to them, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. So this is amazing. Uh, Jesus says, listen, I don't have to worry about, ab- about my life being taken away from me because God has an appointed day for me. He's got an appointed time for me. Uh, he, knows, he knows my timetable. I'm not worried. The Lord knows when I'm going to go to heaven, and I have this window of, of time that I'm going to take full advantage of. All right, so it says this, verse 11, these things he said, and after that, he had said to them, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Now, we get a little insight into this. So Jesus, before he ends up going to, back to Judea, he tells his disciples, the reason why we're going to go there is because our homie Lazarus is sleeping, and I'm going to wake him up. And they respond to Jesus, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. So in their mind, they're like, Jesus, that's so messed up. First of all, like, we don't want to risk our lives for you to go to Bethany um, for the sake of Lazarus. And we certainly don't want to risk our lives there for the sake of waking someone up from a nap. Like, that's kind of, actually, you should let him sleep because he's sick. Like, so in their mind, they're, they, they're genuinely thinking that Jesus wants to go wake a sick person up from their nap. Guys, we must journey a day. I must dis- disturb the rest of a sick person. Like, but really, we know Jesus is speaking about his death. Disciples, are, they, they buffer a bit, right? They're a little slow sometimes to get, get around to the point. Uh, this is a, an expression that's used a lot, especially in, in uh, Eastern culture of, of death. It's the idea of, it, um, can I say something? This is not the doctrine of soul sleep that, that a lot of people have brought that out of this, that when you die, you just kind of, your soul goes into this like sleepy state, this unconscious state until the resurrection. Uh, the Bible actually teaches that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Your last breath on earth, if you're a Christian, is a transfer to your first breath in heaven. There is no soul sleep. The idea here is just the, the appeared state of the body. If you've ever um, uh, had to um, look upon a, a body of someone who's passed away, it's just, it's the most bizarre, lifeless um, thing to look at. It's the most um, almost jarring and disturbing and surreal experience. Um, and the idea is just that it, it looks like someone's sleeping. It looks like someone's unconscious. That's what he's saying. Uh, but he's clearly speaking about death. Now, verse 14 says, then Jesus, because they weren't quite getting it. That's why he had to go. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Okay. So he's like, okay, let me get the point out. All right. He's dead and I'm going. He says, and I'm going. I'm glad for your sake. Sorry. Verse 15. And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. So you see that from Thomas? So Thomas is like the one out of all the disciples that's willing to die with the Lord. The vast majority of them are like, whether he's sleeping or not, I don't care. Jesus, it's not a good idea to risk our lives in service of someone else. And this is, we've been saying this, but um, just to communicate the point. Is it up there, Mike? The second point is this. His love is higher than our standards. His love is greater than our understanding, but we also need to remember that God's love is higher than our standards are. Um, Maybe you've been here before to where your kind of standard of love and what you thought love looked like, it came into collision with what God's love, is look, God's love looks like. We, we, we kind of have these limits to how far we're willing to go, and, and we, there's a, a real tendency uh, to superimpose our standards of love upon God. Like, oh, I know enough of the Bible to know who God loves and who he doesn't. 
You know, we, we can sort of, and here's what we, we get in danger of doing. We, we start to use human wisdom to make sense of the love of God. Because if you really look at this, Jesus here risking his life for someone, if you really look at the gospel, if you really look at the story of God's love in, in the scriptures, it defies human wisdom. Um, great example. Hey, Hosea, I want you to go marry a prostitute named Gomer. It's a great idea, right? And I want you to continue to redeem her and buy her back when she continues to cheat on you and, and, and offer her body for financial gain. And I want you to love her and love her and love her. And even when that love isn't reciprocated, I want you to give everything in service to her. Now, we could write a song about that and call that reckless love, right? Which, like, bothers me. I hear people today still are like, oh, my gosh, that song is not theologically accurate, okay? Um, God's love is not reckless. It's very, like, guys, guys, guys. Um, what a great poetic way to say the love of God doesn't make sense. I don't know. If, if we saw uh, Hosea, like, saying, hey, I'm going to continue to pursue this, this prostitute, we'd probably be like, hey, you're being reckless, you know? Like that. And God says, that is my love for Israel. That's what it looks like. It appears like, like the disciples go to Jesus, Jesus, you're being reckless. You're, you're being self-sacrificial. You're risking so much. And this is because, listen, the, the standard of God's love, it's higher than ours. It's different than ours. And that, this is, was, was a reminder we looked at last week. It's 1 John 3.16, which says, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for um, for, our, for the brethren, for one another. This is the standard of God's love. It's higher than ours. You know, I think right now of uh, the first responders, the medical workers that are on the front lines uh, right now of this pandemic that are displaying this love, sacrificing your time, sacrificing your body. In some cases, sacrificing the, the protection of your health for the good of another. And uh, there, there's, there's a lot of extra teaching you can go into on this in regards to prioritizing yourself as well, um, right? Like when the plane's crashing and they say, put your mask on first, you know? And that's also true. But, but the idea of this is, listen, we serve a God whose love defies human standards. Whatever, you, whatever you've, you've done that you have said, that's, that must be where God's love stops. I wanna tell you, it's higher, it's greater, it's longer. So God's love is greater than our understanding. His love is higher than our standards. Um, and then write this, this next one down. His love is stronger than our limits. Stronger than our limits. It says in verse 17, uh, Jesus, so he tells his disciples, um, Lazarus is dead. Interesting statement he makes in verse 15. And I'm glad. Now that's, that's morbid. And that's like, what? So notice this. He's not, Jesus obviously here is not happy that Lazarus is dead because the most, one of the most famous verses in the Bible, John 13, 30, uh, 11, 35, is where Jesus weeps. So Jesus is not stoked that his friend is dead, but he says, I'm glad for your sakes. I'm glad for your sakes. I'm glad for what's going to come out of this. What a great perspective. Because um, you're going to come to believe in me in a greater way through this. So Jesus comes, verse 17. So when Jesus came, now we don't know the exact amount of time between when Jesus got this message to when he's arriving in Bethany. Uh, it's at least four days, maybe three. If, it took, if they sent the messenger, it took him a day to get there, three to four days at least. Um, but here Jesus comes, uh, can I say, in God's perfect timing, as hard as that is sometimes to, to believe. God, why don't you fix this now? The Lord knows, and he's not delaying. He's good with time. He found that he had already been in the tomb when Jesus came, verse 17, for four days. So this is, it's almost like Jesus wanted to make sure he was really dead. Like, he, he didn't want to come at two or three days, because then it's like, well, was he really dead? No, four days, okay? We're going four days. He comes. It says, now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and, men, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Mary and Martha to comfort them concerning their brother. This is a, a, Jew, a Jewish funeral procession. This is a month-long grieving process. This is not like what we do, which is like a quick service, and then we leave, and then we kind of individually go through the different stages of grief. This is the entire village. These are all the people coming together to mourn the loss of Lazarus together. Verse 20 says, now Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. She went and met him. Now, it tells us that Mary stays in the house. Mary's sitting in the house. These two sisters. I, 
I, I don't know, for me, I, I kind of use my imagination a little bit. I'm, I'm not, I don't want to superimpose anything, but I can just kind of imagine how, Mar- how Martha's walking. But when we get to Mary, we see that she's more in pain and grieving. But Martha, is, I can imagine her coming out like a little frustrated, right? Like, I ordered this package a week ago, you know? Um, Jesus, I sent that message. We didn't hear anything back. We found out that you actually, like, you ever, had, you ever actually been there, like, your righteous indignation with someone because they didn't text you back? And you're like, I saw that you were on your phone. You texted, you texted the group chat that I was in, but you didn't text me back, right? Like, there's this almost, like, I imagine she goes out to meet him. So she's almost, like, very aggressive. Like, she's coming to meet him. Now, that may just be my uh, imagination. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts, all right? But here's what happens. She goes out, she meets him. Verse 21, now Martha said to Jesus, she's very matter of fact here, and I, I don't know if this is her grieving, if, she, if she's going back and forth from like blame shifting to being, try, okay, but I gotta be spiritual, but here's what she says. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She states a fact from her, from her perception. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Okay, oh, but I, if you would have been here, you wouldn't have died. But, you know, I know whatever you ask for, God will give it to you. You know, it's almost like, it seems like she's just, she's making spiritual points, but perhaps it's to mask her frustration. Jesus said to her, your brother, look at this promise, ready? Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again on the resurrection in the last day, on that last day where, where faith will be made sight and we will be resurrected in resurrected bodies. And Jesus said to her, no, 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 the resurrection is not an event. The resurrection is a person. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And what a great question. Do you believe this? Do you believe this about Jesus? And here's what, what, what question is being asked. Do you believe that Jesus is more powerful than death? Do you believe it? Do you believe it about your life personally? Then she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. Uh, again, the point here is seeing that Jesus' love is stronger than our limits, stronger than our limits. Uh, Martha comes to Jesus and she makes these faith declarations, but she was actually coming with a lot of limits. There are two limits specifically. She was limiting Jesus to two things. The first thing she says is, she makes this statement. She says, if you would have been here. So there's an if, right? That's a limit. If you would have been here, then he wouldn't have died. Now, I understand what she's saying, but there is great biblical evidence that I'm sure Martha is aware of that is contrary to this. There's many cases in Scripture where Jesus heals people that he's not with, right? He, he, he doesn't have to be in physical proximity to the person. He, he tells, um, in John 4, he tells the nobleman, go, your son has been made well. And Jesus commends his faith because he believes that. But, but she's, tech, she's limiting Jesus. She's limiting what his power can do, that he had to have been there to actually heal him. That's not necessarily true. Uh, the second thing she limits is his capability, in other words, you lost your chance, Jesus. You could have healed his sickness, but you, he's dead four days. So I know you love him, but your love is not stronger than death. And Jesus says, your brother will rise again because I am the resurrection and the life. Um, there's this incredible uh, poem in the book of Song of Solomon where it's obviously a, a poetry about two lovers, but it's a picture of Christ and the church. And it's Song of Solomon 8.6 that describes the power of love. And it says in Song of Solomon 8.6, this poem says, set me as a seal upon your heart and as a seal upon your arm. Look at this, for love is as strong as death. Jealousy as cruel as the grave. Its flames are flames of fire, a most vehement, vehement flame. Vehement, how do you say that? Vehement? <laughs> vehement th- flame. <laughs> All right? The power of Jesus' love is displayed even there in Song of Solomon. He's proclaiming it to this woman. Whatever your limits are to what the power of Jesus' love can overcome, it's stronger than that. It's stronger than that. It's as strong even as death. Can I say that this is what's true about our lives? Aren't you thankful for how strong the love of Jesus is? The love of Jesus is so strong that if you believe in him, though you die, you'll live. 
so strong that Jesus himself, when he's buried in the grave for three days, he comes back to life because he has power over death. That's what his love has done for me and you. His love is stronger than our limits, even the limit of death. That's what Martha was having trouble seeing, but Jesus says, I am the resurrection, who he is. Uh, This is just great comfort to all of us, that when we die, we haven't died. We're as alive as, as we have ever been. That when we die in Christ, we are alive eternally. What a great hope. Uh, let me give us this last thought, and it's this thought, that Jesus' love, his love is closer than our troubles. Closer than our troubles. So his love is greater than our understanding, it's higher than our standards, it's stronger than our limits, and lastly, it's closer than our troubles. Uh, now we transfer to Mary's reaction when she sees Jesus. When he f- it says, when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, the teacher has come and is calling for you. So Martha goes out to see him. Mary's still sitting in the house. She's um, probably got like, you know, the door shut kind of a thing and she's grieving. Martha says, he's come for you. And it says in verse 20, now Jesus had not yet come into the town. He wasn't even in Bethany yet. Um, but he was in the place where Martha met him outside the town. Then the Jews who were with her, Mary in the house, and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, they followed her, saying that she's going to the tomb to weep there. Now she's going to see Jesus, but they think she's going to weep at the tomb. Then Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, and she fell down at his feet, saying to him, same statement as Martha, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Um, I speculate that, this is just my speculation, that Mary is the youngest sister. It's possible that Martha is the older sister, and so we see her a bit more composed. If you are in a family of siblings, you know that the older one tends to be the extra parent sometimes. You definitely have that with Judah. And it's possible that Lazarus was, if not the oldest brother, certainly maybe the middle brother. And you see Mary as the one that everybody's around comforting, like she's like the baby of the family. Again, this is just my perception. It seems like this could be what's going on. But she's the one that when she sees Jesus, she doesn't, she doesn't you know, and everyone grieves differently. I love that Jesus doesn't rebuke anybody here for how they're grieving. Like when Martha is in her stage of anger, Jesus is not like, no, you should know better, you know? Jesus gives freedom for people to process grief. We got to do that too as Christians. Like, um, I've done more funerals than I enjoy and um, some harder ones, some, some awesome ones. But something I've learned is that there's no Bible verse that's necessarily going to alleviate the pain of someone's heart for losing someone. Um, God gives us the, the freedom to grieve the pain that, that sin has caused in this world and we should, we should do the same. And... Uh, we see Martha being kind of the way that she's dealing with it. She's very, like, almost like stern and like very matter of fact, maybe in denial a bit. But Mary's like not holding anything back. She's, she's broken. And so Jesus comes and she's just like at his feet uh, in pain. It's really interesting. Every time Mary is mentioned in the Gospels, she's at Jesus' feet. Every single time. She'll, she'll go on in the next chapter to, wipe her, to anoint him with oil, wipe his, his feet with her tears and her hair. Um, the story with Mary and Martha, where Martha's serving, Mary's at his feet. Just a beautiful encouragement for us for where we should always be, especially in grief. A posture of worship, a posture of submission and surrender to the lordship of Jesus, a posture of, of humility and brokenness, a posture of dependence, saying, Lord, I'm, I'm before you, I'm at your feet. You know, if, if Mary, if Martha felt that Jesus was limited by his distance, I think Mary felt that Jesus was distant in his distance, if you know what I mean. Like emotionally distanced, like social distant, you know. Like, like it's as if, I think Mary's pain was like his distance had to do with his affection, like he didn't care. It was, it was more like that. But notice what happens Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, it says this, that he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. This word groaned, it's a Greek word that's used a couple other times in the New Testament, um, in the Greek New Testament. And the word picture, the, the word itself literally means like the grunting snort of a horse. 
like, no, not like that. Like, hold on, I don't want to, I won't try to do it again, all right? But like, it's the grunt of like, a, you know, it's, it's, it's this, it's this, um, it's almost like this expression of inner anger. Jesus is angry. Um, what is he angry at? He's angry at death. Jesus hates death. Jesus hates cancer. Jesus hates coronavirus. Jesus hates all the consequences of sin in this world. He uses them for his glory, but the world that God created was a world that was filled with life. The new heavens and the new earth, there's not one drop of death or disease or sickness in it. Here's Jesus, and it's like he's, isn't that interesting that his first response is anger? Like, I don't know if you've been here before where you've been so righteously angry at the consequences of sin that you just wanted to punch some artwork into the drywall, you know? You just wanted to spell your name in the drywall, you know? Like, I mean, that's, that's I mean, this is, by the way, anger, as long as we don't sin in it, is a godly emotion. Jesus shows it, God shows it, God's slow to anger, that's important. But it's sinful to not be angry at some things. That's called apathy. All right, that's called indifference. Jesus, whatever Mary was concerned with, her, her fear was that he was distant, but what did I say, what is this point? His love was closer than her troubles. He gets angry, and then notice this. Everybody's weeping, Jesus groans, he's so, he's, he's angry. And he says, where have you laid him? Now Jesus is like on a mission. He's angry, and he's gonna do something about it. But not until verse the verse says, Lord, come and see. And here's, and I imagine Jesus is now walking. Where have you laid him? He's angry. And now as he's walking, he knows what he's gonna do. He's angry at the results of, of sin. And he goes from anger to one of the most, uh, uh, one of the two shortest verses in the Bible. It says that simply Jesus wept. Um, now, different word for weeping as the other words. The, the crowd is weeping and the word is like a wailing, like, oh, like a cry. This word just means like silent pain, silent grief, like tears, certainly. But Jesus is just in, in quiet anguish. Um, Charles Spurgeon preached two whole sermons on this verse. <laughs> Jesus wept. Uh, Jesus is our man of sorrows. He's well acquainted with grief. Um, if, Jesus, if Jesus can weep death, we should too. Uh, we should learn to be like Jesus. What is he doing? He's weeping with those who weep. He's, and here's the point, he is entering into the pain of this world. Um, Jesus could not be closer in this moment to the pain and the trouble that they're feeling. And can I just say like this is, so this is who God is right now and who he's always been. This has been like a big question that's been, been asked right now. It's like, where is God in the midst of the coronavirus? Like, where is God in the midst of all of this? And if we, if we look at the Bible, you know what we can say? He's where he's always been. Right here in it. Right here with us. Walking with us. Hurting with us. Using it, certainly. More mighty than it, we'll see that certainly, but this is who God is. The Bible says, especially Jesus, that we don't have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. This is God becoming a man. Tim Keller says that, that listen, whatever our, our frustration is with uh, God allowing suffering in this world, um, whatever they are, uh, the, one, the, the one thing that, that it can't be, the one frustration that we cannot have is to say that God doesn't care or feel what we feel. Whatever our frustrations are with suffering this world, there's no way to be able to say that, that God doesn't care. We see that displayed ultimately through the cross where he's gonna take on the full brunt of human pain. His love right now, the Bible says, he is near to the brokenhearted. He is close, closer even than our troubles. What a great picture of this. And here's the response. Jesus wept, then the Jews said, see how he loved him. Here's our theme, love a love that is greater than our understanding, a love that is higher than our standards, a love that is stronger than our limits, a love that is closer than our troubles, and we're going to see the greatness, the highness, the strength, and the closeness of Jesus' love all come into this incredible, powerful package right now. It says, then Jesus again, groaning in himself, there's the horse, angry, ready to, uh, I'll, I'll be PG, kick death's butt. He comes to the tomb, 
It was a cave. In that culture, you didn't have cemeteries. You had caves uh, hewn out, cut out, where you would put the body in for a period of time to decompose. You would then take it out and put it in like a bone box. But anyway, good morning. All right. Um, so he comes to the cave and a stone laid against it. This is similar to the stone in front of Jesus' tomb. Uh, this is a massive tone, stone. It takes several men and great leverage to get this thing in place. And Jesus says, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who is dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he's been dead for four days. Jesus, you don't want to open that door, okay? Um, and the, I love again, the King James says, he stinketh by now, all right? There's a real stinkethness going on, all right? Uh, this, is a, this is a body, um, th- by the way, this is a smell, I hope you haven't had to smell this, but this is a smell that you never forget, um, the smell of, of a decomposed flesh. And this is what's inside the tomb. And the point is, he's dead. Like, this is, this is a dead man. Verse 40, Jesus said to her, did I not say to you, didn't I tell you, Martha, that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me and I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now, Jesus doesn't have to pray out loud, but he does. Why? So that God hears him? No, so that the people can hear him, so that they're going to see this miracle that he's going to perform. It says, now when he had said these things, this is beautiful and powerful and everything. He says, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Now, um, Charles Spurgeon says, why did he say Lazarus? Why did he say his name? And Spurgeon says, um, because there was other bodies in those caves, and because of his, the power of his words are so incredible that he had to actually say the right person. If he would have just said, come forth, everybody would have came. That's how powerful his words are. That's how powerful Jesus is. But Jesus, uh, by the way, Jesus didn't have to say Lazarus, come forth, to call him, right? He could have thought it. But this is just displaying the power of Jesus' words, how, um, how Jesus' words bring life um, where there's death. And so he calls by name, no one else, Lazarus, nobody else, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot. There it is. He who died four days ago comes out bound hand and foot with grave clothes and his face is wrapped full on. This is like the walking dead mummy situation. His face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to him, let them loose him and let him go. It tells us in verse 45 that many of the Jews who had come to Mary, they saw the things that Jesus did. Many of them, this is amazing, believed in him. Um, Now, we're going to look at this next week. I don't know, do you guys notice a problem in that verse? Many of them believed in him. Like, shouldn't it say all of them believed in the guy who just brought the dead guy back to life after four days? But, verse 46, some of them went away to the Pharisees and told on Jesus, tattletales. They told them the things that Jesus did. Uh, This is a great example to the fact that some people are like, man, if I just had a miracle, then I would believe in Jesus. Um, No, because your problem is not what you see. Your problem is the hardness of your heart that needs to be softened by the love of God, that needs to be surrendered to God. And here's a great example of the hardness of the human heart that can see the greatest miracle that Jesus could ever do, and yet it's still not enough. Um, man, where do we end with this? I, I want to end by saying that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And he's not just that for Lazarus, he's that for you too. Did you know that this resurrection, it's two things. Uh, number one, it's a picture. Uh, it's a picture of your and my salvation. Uh, You and I, the Bible says in Ephesians 2, uh, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And like Lazarus, there was no way that you or I could ever resurrect ourselves. You know, and and that's really sad when you see people doing that, trying to attempt that through religion. Like, let let me try to be alive more as a dead person. All you're doing is fixing up your deadness. Like, there's no life there. 
But, but Jesus, the Bible says, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But listen to Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. But because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive. This is a picture of what Jesus, the resurrection, has done in your life and my life. This is a picture of what Jesus wants to do in your life. Sin, sin has caused you to be D-O-A, dead on arrival. Sin has caused you to be disconnected from God. But God, who is rich in mercy, sent his son Jesus into the world to die for you, to rise so that you could move from death to life. It's been well said, Christianity is not about Jesus coming to make bad people good. The Christian message, the Christian truth is about Jesus coming to bring dead people to life. Those who are dead now coming to life. And I also want to say this, that this resurrection, it's not just a picture of our salvation, but guess what? It's a preview. It's a preview of our hope. You know, a preview like a trailer where sometimes it's better than the movie, you know? You know what I'm saying? Like sometimes, there's some trailers where you're like, I'm not even going to see the movie. Like, that was better than anything I could have seen. Um, well, this is a trailer. This is a trailer for a day coming. The Bible says that the Lord is going to descend with a shout. There's a day coming that the dead in Christ are going to rise first. We who are alive and remain are going to be caught up and meet the Lord in the air. This is a day that's coming where Jesus is going to call. He has hopefully called your name and said, come to salvation. And there's a day coming where uh, we will be resurrected into a new hope. Uh, into a, a, a reality where there is no more sin, there is no more death. Here's the point of today as I invite the worship band to close us out. Death does not have the last word. Jesus does. And let me say especially the love of Jesus does. Whatever, whatever um, wrestle you're having with the love of God, maybe you're wrestling with um, your circumstances and, and you're wrestling with how high God's love is compared to your own standards or how great his love is compared to your own understanding. Or, or maybe there's something in your life that you're like, you're limiting God in what his love can do. Or maybe you're wondering like Mary if Jesus is really as close as he promises. And let this serve to remind you that the love of God is higher, it's greater, it's closer, and it's stronger. And it's worth building our entire lives upon. Thanks again for tuning in. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. If you'd like to visit us in person, we gather at Don Estridge High Tech Middle School in Boca Raton, Florida, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. For more sermon content and information, you can check out solaschurch.com.